0: Of all, obviously, you're here on Sunday mornings, but there is also a Sunday evening service. If you haven't been making use of that, we would like to invite you to come. And it's really a time to debrief from the sermon, in a sense, to be able to discuss what God has been teaching you through the teaching of the morning. And it's really a cool opportunity for you to ask questions. It's an opportunity for you to interact with the text more than maybe you would just by listening. You have an opportunity to, to talk back and forth and those type of things. And so if you are looking for a place uh, on Sunday night, I know a lot of you used to help in our, in our kids' ministry, but right now that's still temporarily stopped. So if you're looking for a place to fellowship, that's a great opportunity. So I want to make sure everyone is aware of that. That happens every Sunday night at 6 o'clock. So be here if you want to have some extra discussion. Also, uh, we are still, our teen ministry is still running on Sunday nights as well. Many of you already know that, but 5.30 is when Epic Teens starts. As far as Epic Teens go, tonight, if you're a teen or a parent of a teen, it's gonna, things are going to go a little bit different. We're going to start right at 5.30. Normally we have like 15 minutes of hangout time, and then we play a game, those type of things. We're going to start right away with our lesson, go right to our small groups, and then do game time at the end tonight. That's partially because maybe uh people will have an opportunity to watch a game instead of play a game for our game time so that being said if you know what I'm if you know what I'm going with that's great if not that's great too um, and uh but we're going to do that and then that just means for parents by the way uh we will be watching the entire first half of the game tonight and so if your teen wants to stay for that they're welcome to but pick them up by about 8 because then I'm leaving And we don't want to leave them at the church. So um, that is something that's going on tonight that's a little different. But I also want to talk to you guys, everyone, about Wednesday nights as well. Uh, Wednesday night ABF is what we've been calling it, and it's an opportunity not only to hear more teaching, which, by the way, if you've been here or you've been watching it online, it is wonderful teaching. It's phenomenal that we're hearing about how Romans not only... Uh, uh, not only just learning about what Romans is all about, but learning how it really impacts the way we live and the way we think. And I would really encourage you to be here or watch it online because it's really a good way to learn. But then not only that, then after that is over, the teaching time, there's time for small group interaction. And that's also there's also that opportunity online as well, and that is we're still doing a Zoom group after that live stream is over. So even if you can't be here in person, you can be here virtually, and we'd love to have you join us for that. That's Wednesday night's. Starts at 6.30, goes to about 8, maybe a little after, depending on how long the small group discussions go. So just so you guys know, those things are still going on. And one other uh, ongoing ministry that we still have that we want men to be aware of specifically is Saturday mornings at 7.30. Uh, we have two groups that meet for a time of discussion. We're going through a, uh, some books, a uh, time for discussion, time for prayer, time for fellowship, and it's a really cool opportunity. So if you're a man, and by man I'm meaning basically anywhere from... Uh, 13 to 99 uh, and uh, then we'd love to have you join us for those times as well. So I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that there's still stuff going on besides just Sunday mornings and we'd love to have you join us if you can for any of those opportunities. So and hopefully I haven't forgotten any more, but I think that covers most of them. Uh, young Adult Ministry still is meeting Tuesday nights and that meets at seven o'clock and uh, we will continue to do that through this semester. So, if you are a young adult, and we classify that 18 to 30, but, you know, talk to me if you think you're a young adult, and I'll tell you whether you are or not. So, that's how we'll do that. All right. So, that is really all I wanted to say for my announcements, and now it's time to to open up the word and listen to Justin preach. So, let's do that.
1: Let's pray together. Father, thank you for... Gift of your word. We're grateful that you speak to us through the words printed on these pages. We come wanting to hear you speak, needing to hear you speak. And so we pray, Father, that you would speak in a way that impacts us, speak in a way that changes us. We want to trust you. We want to believe whatever you say. And we want to live the way that you teach us to live in your word. So would you help us this morning as we open your word together? Thank you for the body that's here. Thank you for these men and women gathered together uh, to hear from you. Thank you for this family that we have. Would you help us to live out our family life together and be faithful to what you've called us to in these relationships and out in the community as well. We commit our time to you. We ask that you'd open our hearts and open our ears so that we might make the most of these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The prophetic book of Habakkuk concludes with singing. It began with protesting. It ends with praising. It began with a complaint. It ends with a chorus. It began with a howl, and it ends with a hymn. Habakkuk the prophet asked God the hard questions. Why aren't you doing anything about the wickedness of your people? How long are you going to let people who claim your name to get away with murder... I wonder if Habakkuk was surprised when God showed up and gave an answer. That God showed up with an answer may not have surprised him, but he was certainly surprised by the answer God gave. Oh, little prophet, I am dealing with the wickedness of my people. I am preparing the Babylonians to become my tool of judgment.' Oh, little prophet, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Habakkuk did not like that answer, this unbelievable plan. That's not the answer he wanted. So the prophet protested further How could you, God? Far be it from you, Lord. You could never do such a thing. Has the prophet gone too far? No, rather, his intimacy with the Lord is on display for us. The Lord welcomes his confusion, welcomes his protesting, welcomes his complaint, and then he graciously replies a second time, "'O little prophet, the unrighteousness of the Jews and the wickedness of the Babylonians will both serve to show my righteousness.'" I am raising up Babylon and its kings, just as I raised up Egypt and its pharaohs to show my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. O little prophet, retain your righteousness, live by faith, trust what I say. The dialogue between the prophet and his God really ends there. Habakkuk gets the privilege of announcing the coming condemnation against Babylon in the form of a five-fold woe, but announcing the certain doom of his enemies is not what ultimately satisfies the prophet, settles his angst. After all, the destruction of Babylon will not happen until years after Habakkuk dies. The punishment of Babylon will not happen until about 70 years after Babylon commits the awful crimes poetically described in the woe oracles of Habakkuk 2. It is not prophecy about the future alone that brings the comfort and the help Habakkuk, the prophet, needs to keep living by faith. Rather, he needs to look back and remember the history of God's great deeds of salvation. He needs to remember the gospel And it will be his singing about God's past deeds of salvation and judgment, salvation through judgment, that will steady the shaken prophet. Commentator James Bruckner writes, Songs of Yahweh's intervention that rescued and brought victory to a helpless people are essential to remembering the past. Remembering provides the basis for their present and future hope of deliverance. Through these songs, we maintain meaningful connection between God's past actions and the present reality. Many songs of deliverance were sung in Israel and are found in Scripture. They have the double function of giving praise to God for what He has done and creating hope for His deliverance in the future. Yes, how important it is to sing about what God has done. Not merely to study what God has done, but to sing of what God has done. Keith and Kristen Getty have written a little book entitled, Sing! How Worship Transforms Your Life, Family, and Church. And I highly recommend it. In it, they observe how songs have the power to prompt a memory or transport us back to some other time or place. Singing is explicitly referred to well over 400 times in Scripture and at least 50 times God commands us to sing. He created us out of all creation with a unique ability to sing. He created us and He instructs us on the importance of singing for our spiritual lives repeatedly. And now we get to look at the example of a singing prophet. As the Gettys observe, saved people are singing, people. We sing because it is part of our armor for battle in this life and the means of celebrating our victories. And in Christ, we always have the victory. And as we'll see this morning from Habakkuk, the Gettys are absolutely correct when they write, salvation enables joy and compels singing even when circumstances are set dead against us. This is the wonder of gospel singing. Since nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, nothing need or can or should stop us singing. Singing gives voice to a heart that deeply knows the gospel of grace. It is the overflow of a heart captivated by the gospel. For those who think singing is unimportant or less important, it's time for a heart check. Is your heart captivated by the gospel? Verse 1 of Habakkuk 3 says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigunoth. Chapter 3 is, first and foremost, another prayer. Words the prophet directed to the Lord. It is poetry, some of the most difficult Hebrew poetry in the entire Old Testament. While all of Habakkuk's prophetic book was inspired by the Spirit of God in Hebrew poetic form as was the majority of Old Testament prophecy. This final chapter is lyric poetry, intended to be set to music. It's unclear what the Hebrew word shigyonoth means. It's plural, and the singular form appears as a heading to Psalm 7, shigayon, which, and the best guess is that it comes from a Hebrew verb that means to stagger, which may be a description of the kind of musical rhythm supposed to accompany these lyrics. But it's the final line of the chapter that clearly identifies this section as music. Drop down and look at the, ver- the last part of verse 19. To the choirmaster with stringed instruments. So this is not merely a personal, private prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. Rather, this was intended to be shared and sung together by God's people. One final note about the musical quality of this chapter, three times you will see the word selah in your Bible. It appears in the middle of verses 3 and 9 and at the end of verse 13. While the word appears about 70 times in the book of Psalms, this is the only place it appears elsewhere. Selah is widely recognized as some kind of musical technical term, but its function and purpose is quite unclear. In fact, my own study of the word in the book of Psalms has led me to conclude that it may have some flexibility and may not function the same way all the time. It often works well as a structure marker indicating the end of a stanza, but that isn't always the case, and it's certainly not the case in Habakkuk 3. My own typical practice in reading the Bible is to pause and read the word wherever it appears, not merely to skip over it, since it is a word the Holy Spirit breathed out to be recorded as part of Scripture. However, in my exposition today, I will bypass reading it as we work through these verses. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Shaky Prayer, because, well, shaking appears repeatedly in the prayer. There are seven references to shaking. ...in five verses, and I've seen fit to structure my outline with these references to shaking in mind. But the circumstances we are living in today, like the circumstances of Habakkuk's day, could be described as shaky, tumultuous... And so I think it's fitting as we close out this study of Habakkuk to pray and to sing with Habakkuk and see how the Lord might use these very words to settle, stabilize, and strengthen us so that we might endure with faith and obedience no matter what comes in our circumstances. Let's look at verse 2. Praying to the God who shakes. Habakkuk 3, 2. O Yahweh, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Yahweh, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk addresses his God by name. Yahweh, the personal name revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, that covenant name about which he said in the burning bush, Exodus 3.15, This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The report Habakkuk mentions refers to Yahweh's responses to his protests. The work Habakkuk fears is the work Yahweh told him in chapter 1, verse 5, that the Jews would find unbelievable. The work Habakkuk fears is the arrival of the Babylonian armies to execute God's judgment against the wicked Jews. We'll come back to this point toward the end of the chapter, but just note here how Habakkuk expresses his fear. The prophet is afraid of coming circumstances, and he freely admits it. The only petition or request in this prayer comes right here. Even though Habakkuk is fearful, he still asks God to do what he said he's going to do. He says, in the midst of the years, revive it. More commonly, the word translated revive means preserve. Habakkuk is asking God to keep the work going until it is completed. And he's asking him to do this in the midst of the years, which probably is a way of saying soon. This is a good reflection of the prayer Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In most of our English Bibles, the next two lines look like two further requests. And the Hebrew could be taken that way. But it seems more natural to take these last two statements as promises. Future tense statements about what Habakkuk believes God will do. So in the same breath that the prophet asks God essentially to keep the word of judgment, he affirms that God will do just that. In the midst of the years, you will make it known. That last line of verse 2, however, is the one to emphasize. And again, I think Habakkuk is expressing his faith beautifully here. He's not merely asking God to remember mercy. Rather, he's saying, you will remember mercy. The word for wrath here is a reference to shaking. It literally refers to violent trembling. And that can be a physical manifestation of either anger or fear. And we'll see this same word used a few more times in this chapter expressing the idea of fear. Here, however, we could paraphrase. In your trembling rage, you will remember to show mercy. Surely, Habakkuk is trusting the promises of God here, such as what the Lord said to Isaiah about a century earlier in Isaiah 54, 8. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh your Redeemer. Isaiah's phrase, have compassion, translates the same Hebrew word as Habakkuk's, show mercy. It's an emotional word that has a literal, physical reference to the belly or the guts. It's the idea of feeling such deep compassion for someone's plight that your stomach's actually in knots. That's how God has promised to feel toward His people. And that feeling of compassion will motivate Him to act, to show compassion, to bring relief and salvation to His faithful remnant. But since judgment is coming, God's trembling rage, His burning wrath is going to be poured out on the Jewish people. How can the faithful remnant steel themselves to keep trusting Him when their world is turned upside down and inside out? Habakkuk provides a poetic reflection on the past. Let's look at verses 3-7 through seven, where Habakkuk poetically recalls the conquest when Yahweh used the nation of Israel to bring judgment on wicked nations in the land of Canaan. The conquest and the shaking of earth and the nations. Habakkuk 3, verses 3 to 7. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. There is a difference between singing about the past and telling the story of the events, right? We have to remind ourselves here that this is poetry, which means we don't necessarily expect historical events to be described with literal details that actually happened. We don't necessarily expect the events to be mentioned in the order that they actually happened. Instead, one writer has suggested that the poetry here could be compared with a collage, a collecting of many images together to convey an impression both of past experience and of future expectation. Or another writer has suggested the analogy of a kaleidoscope of history, whereby the prophet describes Yahweh's military power in his historical acts of judgment and salvation from the past, associated particularly with the conquest of Canaan, possibly with some reference also to the Exodus from Egypt. Let's consider some of the details. Habakkuk depicts God as the divine warrior on the march, starting from Teman in Edom and Mount Paran, just north of Mount Sinai. At this point, as Habakkuk composes this song, he may be remembering the earlier poem of Moses from Deuteronomy 33, which begins... Yahweh came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Seir, like Teman, is a city of Edom. And Moses was reflecting on the events that transpired at Mount Sinai. Moses was picturing Yahweh marching with his grand army to Mount Sinai to meet with his people. The wilderness of Paran was also the place where the nation of Israel camped and sent the 12 scouts across the Jordan River that was the terrible affair of Kadesh-Barnea the people's stubborn refusal to enter the land in numbers 14 of course after 40 years of God's judgment against the gener- against that generation of Israelites they would successfully cross the Jordan River under Joshua's leadership Habakkuk pictures Yahweh marching in the same region but Where does he depict the Lord as going? The destination could be the places named in verse 7, Cushan and Midian. Cushan is not otherwise mentioned in Scripture, but it may be reflected in the name of the first king Yahweh raised up to punish the people of Israel after they had settled in the land of Canaan. In Judges chapter 3, verse 8, Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Likewise, more famously perhaps, in Judges 6, Yahweh used Midian to punish the people until Yahweh raised up Gideon to rescue them. If that's the historical backdrop that's influenced Habakkuk's singing here, other occasions where the Lord acted mightily to bring judgment against His people through other nations, and then how following that judgment, the Lord showed up to rescue them, then what's Habakkuk singing about in between these geographical references? Many folks refer to the description of God here as a theophany, an appearance of God on the earth. This is what it's like when God shows up. Habakkuk's searching for imagery to communicate the wonder, the significance, the awesomeness of God's presence when He comes to save His people and judge the wicked. This is not a literal description as though we're getting an eyewitness account of what happened when God acted to punish Israel or what happened when God used Gideon and his band of 300 to overthrow Midian. Instead, the cosmic imagery here is seeking to capture the magnificence of those events in history. Thus, when God shows up, as verses 3 and 4 describe, the sky is blanketed by His majestic brightness, like the bright orange color that dominates the sky at sunrise on a cloudless morning. But even in this kind of vivid display, at the end of verse 4... God is actually veiling His power. We dare not ask Him to reveal the fullness of His glory. We must content ourselves with the uh, afterglow, uh, the backside, lest we be utterly destroyed. Verse 5 might be referencing God's judgment on Egypt as well with reference to pestilence and plague as though they were the Holy King's armed guard, servants that do His bidding. But just as likely, Habakkuk may be recalling how God threatened the people of Israel with pestilence in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh Barnea, as recorded in Numbers 14.12. And the Hebrew word translated plague here never refers specifically to the judgments of Yahweh in Egypt. There's a different Hebrew word that gets translated plague. Rather, this word appears in one of the covenant curses directed toward Israel in Deuteronomy 32.23. One Hebrew Dictionary defines this term, translated plague, as any epidemic disease with a high death rate. It's a curious definition for a word that has a literal reference to burning and fire and lightning, but, when it does, but then it does fit in the context of diseases which cause fever or inflammation of various kinds. To bring the point home, whether or not the coronavirus was cooked up in a lab in China, ultimately it serves the Lord as one of His agents of judgment against the wicked and blessing for His people. James Bruckner writes of the impact God's tiny and gigantic means of judgment should have on self-centered, man-centered thinking. He writes, Anthropocentrism, man-centered thinking, is deconstructed when microorganisms rain down terror or tectonic plates convulse and level cities. God uses such micro and mega means to reorient illusory idolatries. In other words, God may use anything from microscopic viruses to mighty earthquakes above 8.0 on the Richter scale to destroy our tendency to serve and worship ourselves or other things beside the one true God. Verse 6 features the shaking of the physical creation. In the first line of verse 6, we should follow the NIV. He stood and shook the earth rather than the ESV and King James Version and others that have he stood and measured the earth When God shows up, the whole earth experiences convulsions. He simply looks at the nations, and it's as though He had snuck up behind them and shouted, Boo! (laughs) Even the mountains and the hills, which seem unshakable, which seem eternal, when God shows up, they crumble and are blown to bits. We think the mountains are immovable. And we can be awed by their grandeur into marveling at how long they've been here. Thousands of years. But Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, He is the only one who is truly eternal. So Habakkuk has seen, perhaps even as part of his visionary experience with the Lord here, a glimpse of the awesome power of God when He shows up. Viewed through the lens of his Bible, his history looking back at those great events related to the conquest, even events when God judged His own people. Habakkuk marvels and worships at the magnificence of God showing up. And that memory fuels his faith that God is going to show up again. And when He does, the unrepentant Jews better watch out. And then the Babylonians had better watch out as well. But in His wrath, He will remember to show compassion. Mercy to those who are trusting and waiting for him. In verses 8 to 15, Habakkuk continues his poetic reflections on the past, perhaps mingling events related to the exodus from Egypt and the crossing of the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. Here he sings of God's wrathful salvation shaking the mountains. Look at verses 8 to 15. Was your wrath? Against the rivers, O Yahweh? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place... at the light of your arrows as they sped... at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people... for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked... laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows... The heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Habakkuk begins this new section with a rhetorical question framed by some powerful imagery. When God showed up to save His people, He's depicted as riding a war chariot into battle. And Habakkuk asks whether His anger was against the rivers or the sea. These seem to be references to different occasions where God's acts of judgment and salvation have impacted, literally and historically, bodies of water, such as the Red Sea and the Jordan River. As He brought the Israelites out of Egypt, He plagued the waters of Egypt with blood. And then, at the climactic moment, he split the Red Sea right in two. At the end of Exodus 14.21, the ESV calmly describes this as, and the waters were divided. But the Hebrew verb there describes a cleaving, the kind of thing a battle axe would do to its enemies. And then, as he brought his people to the border of Canaan, he did a similarly violent thing to the Jordan River. In Joshua 3.16, we read that the waters were were completely cut off, a Hebrew word which is often used to describe the execution of a person with a sword. So it's reasonable for Habakkuk to wonder whether God was angry with the waters. Verse 15 then poetically describes the Lord riding His war chariot, trampling down the waters. But of course, the Lord wasn't angry with the water. No, He was angry with sinful people, and He was coming to bring salvation to people who trusted Him. So in between verses 8 and 15, Habakkuk poetically describes Yahweh as the divine warrior, going to war to bring judgment against his enemies and to bring salvation for his people. Now at verse 9, I want to pull off the road for just a moment and address a side issue that you might notice in your Bible. If you're reading verse 9 in the ESV, you'll see a footnote after the word arrows that says... The meaning of the Hebrew line is uncertain. Now, I already commented briefly at the beginning of the message about how difficult the Hebrew of this chapter is. And when you see a note like this, you can know that that's exactly what's going on. I appreciate the ESV because they provide these kinds of footnotes. Even if you're not reading an edition that's a study Bible, they've got a footnote there that tells you these kinds of things in order to be honest and transparent about some of these translation difficulties. There are about a hundred of these kind of footnotes in the Old Testament of the ESV. Now, you might think that that's a lot of places where we don't know what's being said. However, most of the time, the note applies to a single word or phrase, and the context is usually clear enough to get the point. And when you remember that there are more than 23,000 verses in the Old Testament, 100 places where we need to admit that we're not sure isn't that often at all. And of all of those places that I personally have studied, which isn't all 100, this one definitely takes the cake. For that reason, I'm going to move right past verse 9. So in verse 10, we get our reference to shaking. Here, when God shows up, The mountains are personified as seeing God's appearance, and in shock and terror, they writhe with the kind of tremors a woman experiences in giving birth. Again, appreciate the imagery, the figurative language. Mountains don't get pregnant and have babies. But God's presence in the world is so powerful that one of the most stable realities in the physical world is shaken violently. When God actually showed up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, the people standing around the mountain experienced a real seismic event, an earthquake that visibly, tangibly shook the mountain. In an interesting parallel to Habakkuk's imagery here, using the same Hebrew word for giving birth, going into labor, David wrote in Psalm 29.9, the voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth. When God shows up, it is a terrifying experience. As Habakkuk goes on to say in verse 10, when God shows up, even the ocean depths scream in terror and throw up their hands in surrender. In verse 11, Habakkuk may be reflecting on the historical event recorded for us in Joshua chapter 10, possibly even quoting the poetic ditty Joshua produced to commemorate the miraculous occurrence. Here's Joshua 10, 12 to 14 to remind you of that event. At that time Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said, "In the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aidelon." And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since. When Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. As Habakkuk perhaps recalls this miraculous intervention from the Lord, he may be poetically describing the hailstorm that had accompanied the battle as well, as mentioned in Joshua 10.11. Habakkuk speaks of Yahweh's speedy arrows and flashing spear. Then in verse 12, notice how global the language is. He describes the Lord marching through the earth in fury. And he adds the vivid image of threshing the nations in anger. Threshing is about separating the chaff from the wheat, a common image of God's judgment in Scripture. But do you know how threshing was accomplished in the ancient world? There were three common methods. Most often the harvested grain was spread out on the ground, and then a platform with jagged stones and metal pieces on the bottom of the platform was dragged across the grain. Or the farmer would lead his oxen to stomp on the grain. Or the grain might be whacked repeatedly with a stick. That is what the Lord is depicted as doing to the nations. And might I remind you, that the nations are made up of people. Now hone in on verse 13 again. Habakkuk says, You went out for the salvation of your people. We should connect this back to Habakkuk's first protest, specifically chapter 1, verse 4, where he complained that justice never goes out, goes forth, and justice goes forth perverted. Now the judge himself goes out, as a mighty warrior to fight for the salvation of his people, to bring judgment against the wicked, and salvation for the righteous. In the parallel line, he speaks of the salvation of your anointed. This is the Hebrew word, Mashiach, from which we get the English word, Messiah. Who is he referring to here? Now, at this point, we're good Christian Bible readers who immediately want to jump to Jesus, right? Surely, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One par excellence is intended, right? The New King James Version goes ahead and capitalizes it for us so that we're driven in that direction already. Well, not so fast maybe. Slow your redemptive roll and cool your Christological jets. As it turns out, the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, in the Old Testament, very rarely refers explicitly and only to the future, final, ultimate Messiah, the one we know of as Jesus. In fact, there are only two Old Testament verses where the word Mashiach is clearly, directly referring to Jesus. Daniel nine twenty six for sure, And Psalm 2-2, definitely, though Psalm 2-2 probably has an immediate reference to Old Testament kings in the line of David as well. The Hebrew term appears 38 times in the Old Testament. This is where it's important to remember that the Messiah, that the word Messiah simply refers to someone who has been anointed with oil. A symbolic gesture identifying a particular individual as chosen by God for a particular role, office, or task. Kings were anointed, priests were anointed, and even some prophets were anointed. Thus, every king of Israel and Judah could be referred to as a Messiah. Every priest could be referred to as a Messiah. And it's probably right to refer to a prophet as a Messiah. So, who does Habakkuk have in mind here? Well, as he remembers these past events, he could be simply referring to the kings of Israel and God's various interventions to preserve the line of David in particular. Or, as he applies this to himself and his own day, he could be referring to himself as an anointed prophet. In verse 14, he's going to speak of the villains as attacking himself. And so here he may be personalizing the message of salvation, again, expressing his personal faith. Or, and this is where I lean, as he looks back and remembers historical occasions when God showed up to judge the wicked and save his people, he is also prophesying, foreshadowing, foretelling what God will do again. As he acted in the past, so he will do again. Thus he speaks of the fulfillment... Of God's answer to his second protest that the Babylonians will be judged for their wickedness. If we look at the King James Version or the New King James Version translation of this phrase, we find an important difference that points us in a clearer direction. The New King James Version says at this point, for salvation with your anointed. The width is reflected in the Hebrew text, and this would mean that Habakkuk is speaking of God using a human anointed one to bring about his salvation of the people. Now, do we jump to Jesus? Still, no. Or not yet, at least. In Isaiah, a particular individual is referred to as God's Mashiach, anointed one, Messiah whom he would use as his agent of judgment and destruction against Babylon. Do you remember who that is? Cyrus of Persia. Isaiah 45.1 is the key text. Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and on he goes. As the Lord empowered the Babylonian empire to grow and conquer and finally to plunder and punish God's own people, the Jews, so also the Lord will empower King Cyrus and the Persian empire to grow and conquer and finally to plunder and punish Babylon. And Yahweh reveals to Isaiah his name about a hundred years before he'd even be born. And he refers to him as his own Messiah. Habakkuk knew Isaiah's words. It seems quite probable he could be reflecting on his hope for the fulfillment of this specific prophecy. But what about Jesus? Doesn't God bring ultimate salvation for His people with or through the Messiah, Jesus? Absolutely He does. So yes, in a secondary, typological way, this line points forward to Jesus. One writer summarizes, As one anointed servant restores the people in a limited political geographical sense, so the other anointed servant restores the people in the fullest redemptive setting. And in the next line, Habakkuk goes even further back in prophecy to grab hold of the original prophecy of final salvation, first stated all the way back in Genesis 3.15. A thread runs through the Old Testament from that verse in Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, growing in thickness and brightness until the tapestry unfurls in the New Testament. Jesus is the head-crushing descendant of Eve who would ultimately crush the head of Satan, that evil power that controlled the snake in the garden, even as a venomous, Snake applies a fatal blow to the man. So here in Habakkuk, Yahweh crushes the head of the house of the wicked person. He did it in the past. He's going to do it to the Babylonians. And ultimately, he will do it to Satan through the work of Jesus on the cross. Thus, Habakkuk's reflections here look both backward and forward, as does most prophecy in one way or another. Verse 14 elaborates on the head-crushing victory the Lord would win, describing it as using the weapons of the enemies against them. Isn't that a fitting description of so many Old Testament war stories? But more importantly, isn't that a fitting description of the gospel, of the way God wins the final victory over Satan, using Satan's big gun, his secret weapon, his most powerful tool, condemnation and death? to serve as his ultimate undoing. Jesus endured judicial condemnation that he did not deserve and then was executed as a criminal, dying the most shameful torture and death humanity has ever perpetrated. And he won. Habakkuk, like us, needs to believe in God's victory over evil. And he fuels his faith here with poetic, lyrical memories of historical victories long past so that he can stand firm and wait for the promised victory that will come in the future. The final verses of the chapter show us Habakkuk's final response in all of this. Look at verses 16 to 19 and we'll see how Habakkuk has moved from a shaken prophet to a spry mountaineer. I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Verses 16 to 19 illustrate what it will look like for a righteous person to live by faith in this fallen world. At first, however, verse 16 reads like a description of an anxiety or panic attack or someone suffering from shock. Habakkuk has heard God's responses to his protest and he is now terrified. He's freaking out a bit. In the first part of verse 16, we read a description of terror. But at the end of verse 16, there's tranquility. In verse 17, we read about the devastation of anticipated circumstances. But in verse 18, we read about a commitment to delight. Verse 19 explains the logic, or if we dare call it that, or perhaps better, theologic. Habakkuk has been told what is about to happen. He is afraid of what is about to happen. If an Old Testament prophet who reflects a deeply intimate relationship with the Lord can experience fear due to circumstances, then I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it might be okay for us to experience fear at times as well. The prophet Isaiah had a similar experience. The Lord had revealed to Isaiah the coming judgment of Babylon about a hundred years before they even became a world power or a threat to God's people. And Isaiah had expressed a desire for that judgment to come against the enemies of God's people. But when it came right down to it, and Isaiah really reflected on what that judgment was going to entail, he describes a similar experience of anxiety to Habakkuk. Listen to Isaiah's words in Isaiah 21, verses 3 and 4. Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. If these prophets these men of God, can be found shaking in their boots in terror, anticipating suffering and circumstances that will be painful, why should we expect an exemption? Or why should we expect each other to be more stable? What Habakkuk and Isaiah both describe here is what Pastor Ken described so well two weeks ago as faith through fear. That is the normal Christian life. Many of us are afraid of what President Biden's administration is going to do that might negatively impact the freedoms we currently enjoy. Some of us are afraid of what's going to happen to our economy. Some of us have been afraid of contracting COVID. Some of us have been afraid of unknowingly giving COVID. Some of us have been afraid of COVID spreading in or through this church body. Some of us are afraid of church conflicts and disagreements. With this last one, we are just like the Apostle Paul. Like the prophets, the Apostle Paul admitted his fear in the midst of conflict and pressure. Consider 2 Corinthians 7.5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. He goes on in the next verses to describe how God kindly, compassionately comforted his fears by sending Titus with a good report. Think about this. How long was Paul afraid? How long did it take Titus to show up? Days? Weeks? Months? Yeah, the Apostle Paul experienced prolonged fear. I'm sure he prayed about it. But the fear lingered, and God eventually helped him get through it. Through another Christian brother. I have heard too often, over the past year, Christians glibly quoting 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Or appealing to the fact that God commands us to fear not, Hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the Bible, as a chastisement of those of us who are experiencing fear. When fear is experienced by Christians, or anyone for that matter, the biblical response is to extend compassion. Biblical counselor Ed Welch has rightly observed fear and anxiety express our weakness amid the threats of daily life. We are merely human, we are not the creator. Weak people are also sinners, but weakness is not sin. Weakness means that we need help from God and other people. I wonder if people who would look down on others who have been afraid, experiencing fear, and who would not go out of their way to help a fearful brother or a fearful sister realize how their pride and arrogance Is on display for all the world to see. How many are blasting other Christians for doing something motivated by fear truly as a smokescreen to cover their own actual fears simply in order to appear strong in people's eyes? It's true that we can sin because of fear, but that doesn't mean that fear itself is always necessarily sinful. Habakkuk had good reasons to fear, but he resolves to trust the Lord in the midst of his fear. At the end of verse 16, we have his own expression of beautiful faith. In spite of his genuine fear, he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. The verb translated quietly wait is actually the word for rest in the Old Testament, The loud-mouthed, protesting prophet has finally settled down and is ready to rest, receiving the word the Lord had spoken, that Babylon would be judged for their wickedness, just as Judah must be judged for theirs. Historically, Habakkuk probably didn't live long enough to see it unfold. But that's okay, isn't it? As the Apostle Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We live believing what God says, no matter what these physical eyeballs see in the world. Verses 17 and 18 provide probably the most beloved words in the book of Habakkuk, if not a close second to Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by his faith. But Habakkuk begins by describing the devastation that he fears. No figs, grapes, wine, or olives, no bread, no meat, no clothing, no milk. That's the kind of scarcity devastation and deprivation that Habakkuk expects in the wake of God's judgment through the Babylonian invasion. How can Habakkuk commit to rejoicing when starvation is literally on the horizon? Perhaps he had come to understand what Jesus understood. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Jesus responded to Satan's temptation to satisfy his legitimate hunger in an illegitimate way with this line, you know Jesus was quoting the Old Testament, right? He was quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, a verse I suspect Habakkuk was familiar with as well. It's helpful to remember the context. We can just look at the entire verse to clarify the point. Moses is explaining to the people in the wilderness what God had been doing as he led them through the wilderness for 40 years. Deuteronomy 8:3 says from the NIV He humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh I'm quoting from the NIV here because it brings out the force of that second phrase more clearly than most other translations God caused them to hunger And the word hunger usually carries the force of starving. And from Israel's complaining in Exodus 16, they certainly thought they were going to starve to death. What's the point? God brought these bad circumstances into the lives of His people. God caused Israel's hunger so that He could satisfy them in a way that was more important and more valuable than if they could meet their own needs through ordinary means. And God was going to cause the dreadful circumstances of the Babylonian invasion so that He could bring the deserved judgment against the unrepentant in Judah and also so that He could bring salvation to the remnant in a way that was more important and more valuable than if things were to carry on as they were. So it is, brothers and sisters, God has brought a new government administration in the United States full of people who do not share the values or beliefs that we do. The lesson for us is the same as it was for the Israelites in the wilderness, or Habakkuk the prophet, and for the righteous remnant in Judah when the Babylonians showed up. We can only live as righteous people in this world by believing what God says. Or, as Habakkuk said, the righteous shall live by his faith or as jesus and moses said man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of god by believing and obeying every word god has said god may teach us this lesson through the hard means of government policies that threaten us in ways we've never been threatened before how are we going to respond how Are we going to deal? Are we going to cling ever more tightly to our perceived rights? Are we going to keep on grieving and complaining about how we missed the good old days? About how things were better under a different president? Or are we going to keep on trusting the Lord and seeking to obey Him in this new situation? Let me ask you directly. Out of obedience to Scripture, have you begun praying for President Biden? And I don't mean asking the Lord to judge him or get him out of office already. (laughs) Will you commit to praying for him and for his administration as an act of faithful obedience to God? If not, why not? But Habakkuk shows us what faith in the face of devastation looks like It looks like expressed joy. Don Carson writes, It is almost as if the threatened loss of all material blessings and security drives him to enjoyment of God. There's nothing and no one else to rely on, and therefore nothing to mask the enjoyment of God that ought to be the believer's focus. I was again reminded of the Apostle Paul's words about his experience, which included some significant loss loss of status in the Jewish community, at times loss of his health after being beaten or shipwrecked, and repeated loss of his freedom due to being locked up in a jail cell. From all that, while in a jail cell, he could say in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Like Habakkuk, the only gain Paul could count on for the future was the eternal gain of knowing the Messiah, knowing the Savior, and receiving the eternal salvation Jesus has provided through His death and resurrection. In that same letter, of course, repeatedly, Paul appeals to his Christian readers to rejoice at all times. And the flip side of one of those commands to rejoice is found in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious
0: about anything.
1: Yes, one of those many commands, to not be anxious or not be afraid. But if anxiety, if fear is a form of our human weakness, what's the prescribed remedy? Grateful praying. Oh. Isn't that what we've seen Habakkuk doing here? Praying in the midst of his terror, and even coming now to the conclusion and praising God, committing to rejoice in Him no matter what the circumstances. The old adage, prayer changes things, is not true. But God does. And more often than not, His greatest concern is to change the person who prays, and not necessarily to change the circumstances. That's what happened to Habakkuk as he prayed and wrestled with God and as he prays now here at the end in praise of God expressing his faith in God and committing to rejoice in God come what may he finds himself being stabilized by God. In verse 19 he provides the reason he can commit to rejoice regardless of circumstances and it's the same reason you and I can rejoice no matter what hardship we're facing in life. Yahweh the Lord Is my strength. He again speaks of his God by his personal covenant name, and then he adds the title Lord, Sovereign, Master. It is the Lord in his sovereignty that supplies my strength. The word for strength here is a common word that usually refers to military might, courage, or valor. It's the word used to describe the Proverbs 31 woman. In Proverbs 31.10, it's the word that ironically describes Gideon in Judges 6. It's the word that describes both Boaz and Ruth. And it's a word that described David and the Gentile leper Naaman. What ultimately enabled all of them to gain the characteristic of valor was acknowledging, accepting, and even embracing the sovereignty of God over their lives and over the world. That's what you and I need too. The image Habakkuk uses to describe the strengthening he's experienced is well known, and it's likely that Habakkuk is again quoting earlier Scripture, this time from David, from Psalm 18.33. As David was celebrating the victories the Lord had enabled him to experience throughout his life, at the end of his life. Habakkuk, however, hasn't experienced the victory yet. Here, he sings by faith. Whereas in verse 16, his legs were shaky and wobbled in fear, God has transformed them to agile, spry, mountain-scaling, powerful legs. Or as one commentator puts it, the terror of verse 16 gives place to the confidence of verse 19. Legs like jelly become like magnificent athletic animals. The Lord has provided stability to His prophet in the midst of His faith and in the midst of His fear. To quote James Bruckner once again, remembering the past gives an anchor to the present while the faithful wait for the future. Isn't that image of the anchor so helpful? The author of Hebrews used that image to good effect. As we close, consider Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. An anchor is a powerful image of stability, something that can hold us in place to endure the toughest storms. The anchor for us is the gospel. We look back to that great victory that's been won on our behalf. Jesus died on that cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven to serve as our great high priest forever. He's described here in Hebrews as our forerunner. One who literally ran ahead to cross the finish line as the first place winner. One who shares his victory with us. We don't have to cross the finish line on our own merits. He did it for us and he shares all that he has won with us. As Paul says, we are truly more than conquerors in the midst of all that truly terrible things that we endure in this life. And our victory is achieved, experienced, and enjoyed only through Him who loved us. So at the end of the book of Habakkuk, we see a prophet who lives by faith. The final question then comes Will you? Pray with me. Father, thank you for giving us this. Singing prophet. Oh, he was a protesting prophet and a trembling prophet along the way, but we see him here at the end of it all singing out his faith. Would you help us to take that lesson so that we might be those who live by faith? You've counted us righteous by our faith. Now help us to live the life of righteousness by faith. No matter what pressures come, no matter what losses we must face and endure, Give us strength in our legs to keep running the race that's been set before us and help us to keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who started up our faith. He's the one who will ensure that it maintains and holds until the end. So let us cling to him in faith in these difficult days and trust you no matter what comes in our circumstances. Thank you, Father, for caring for us as your children connecting us to your great Son, and giving us all these great blessings. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.